0: We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning. If you uh, want to turn there, I'm not going to exegete Ephesians 5 this morning. I'm going to do that, actually, that in 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 3 tomorrow morning uh, at the worship service, but I am going to springboard from Ephesians 5 uh, to talk about some practical practical matters. Uh, Men men are to be leaders in their home, and... (coughs) It's one of the most critical places for them to lead because that's where you practice the leadership that's where that's where it all happens that's where the rubber hits the road i mean that's where just things go wrong when uh i mean just think about it (coughs) if you're if you're married when you when you got married you doubled the amount of sin in the home right i mean it was you and then you marry somebody and it just doubles and then you know you add a couple of kids and it quadruples, and then I don't know what do you call it when you have eight kids, but it's a lot, I got to tell you. I mean, it's just a lot. I mean, it's just it just is. I mean, <clears throat> we love each other in our house, but we're all fallen, and there's just opportunity to say the right thing the wrong way, the wrong thing the wrong way, the tone of voice and the misunderstandings that can happen. I mean, it's just, they're just, it, it's at the most critical place, though, is leadership in the home, because that's... Everything springs from there, (coughs) in terms of how you lead in the community, how you lead at church. The home is where you practice what you learn at church. So we assemble ourselves in the local church, and we hear the exhortation of the word and accountability with our small groups and other ways that your church may hold one another accountable. Then you're in the home (coughs) most of the time. That's where you are the most most of the time. There in your workplace and it's the home where the pe- people see you the most and they see everything but it's it's a good thing because because God God designed it so that everybody would want to be on board right i mean it, it, your your kids god designed it even in a fallen world so the kids would want to be on board they want to be a part of something it's not it, it's a hard job to lead this thing because of the fallenness of everybody involved but there's also still what I and the Reformers would call a relic of the image there. It's still there, and so there's still an inclination to get on board with what God has put together. When uh, <coughs> we adopted Spencer, he's he just turned nine, but we adopted him when he was five, and this family had had him for four years. He, they adopted him when he was one. They had him for four years, and then they didn't want him anymore, and so we happened to be right there at the right spot, and we said we want him, and so we got him. And uh, we were, he was in the D.C. area, and we went there, and the judge checked off on everything, and he got in the car, and he's calling me Dad from day one. And he says, Dad, guess what? I said, what? He said, my favorite sport is football. Well, we're a baseball family. So I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's five I mean how formidable can he be right so he said dad yes it is my favorite my favorite sport is football I said no son your favorite your favorite sport is baseball he said dad no it isn't I said what's your last name now he said Stinson I said okay then it's settled favorite sport is baseball He said, "All right." He said, can my second favorite sport be football? I said, anything but soccer can be your second favorite (laughs) sport. That's just how we roll. I'm sorry. So two weeks later, we're in Louisville. We're at the baseball park, and me and my older two boys are coaching him up, trying to teach him how to play some baseball, and we sit in the dugout, taking a break, and he said, Dad, guess what? I said, what? He said, my favorite sport's baseball. I said, I know it is, I told you it was two weeks ago. <laughs> and he says, "And uh, hey, we don't like soccer, do we? I said, no, we don't. Now see, just, just in two weeks, right? Just in two weeks, why? Because he's trying to get on board, right? I mean, he's just, God made it, so he's trying to get on board. <clears throat> this, is, this is how there's new family roles, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get on board with him. We don't like soccer, we like baseball, what else do we got, you know? We like bacon and eggs and whatever. So God made it. I know it gets complicated in those teenage years. It just does. They're trying to, they're trying to become men and they, they want to be men and they, they see what the world of men is like and they think they're ready. And then, and sometimes I think, you know, I look at my teenage boys and one minute, I think, I think this kid could run a McDonald's. but well, then I think one, then the next day I'm thinking, I don't know how he's going to make it through the day, you know, right? I mean, he's just, they're just at that spot where one minute, They've, they're just showing all good, all the good stuff and then the next minute i think okay they're like 11 you know they went back down to 11 and uh, it's a challenge it's a challenge we're going to talk this afternoon specifically about fatherhood and raising the next generation of men but ephesians 5 gives such a clear <coughs> gives such clear instruction to men and and wives wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is head of the wife even as christ is head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so it's it's just so clear here, and it's clear in 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 3, it's clear to me, at least in the entire warp and woof of scripture, what is affirmed about men is this constant role of leadership, provision, and protection. And it's got to be done in a particular way, with particular care. You can't just do it however you want to, but God has given us a, a responsibility, and the challenge is: is a lot of times we really don't know exactly what that looks like. And so, what I'd like to do this morning <coughs> is give nine nine areas where men should initiate in the home. Nine ways. Nine where where men can lead, like Paul is telling the Ephesians that men ought to lead. This is what it looks like. <coughs> there are nine areas. <coughs> And I want to be clear, it doesn't mean that a a wife or a mom can't do any of these. It just means, in general, the man ought to be the one more regularly doing these things. Now, if you're not married, it doesn't matter. These are still just good leadership principles in terms of how men should lead. If If you're not even old enough to be married, it doesn't matter, because these are still principles that you need to be aware of. I wish I knew before i got married all sorts of things i found out after i got married right i mean I just probably every man in here thinks that way i wish i had a lot of good people in my life giving me a lot of good things but there's a whole lot i didn't know and so the more you can get before that time the better and the odds are if you're single the odds are you probably are going to be married that's just the pattern of scripture that's the pattern of all of life i do affirm and believe that the bible teaches uh, the permanent gift of singleness and some people have it. I don't think it's super common, but it is there. <clears throat> but while you are single, you should use all your time for the glory of God and do things that you might not otherwise get to do or have time to do once you, once you get married. That seems to be what the Apostle Paul is saying, even about those that have the gift of singleness. It does give you extra time to do all sorts of extra things that those of us that are married with children just don't have the time to do. So the first one is this, <coughs> and I'll give a word and then a little statement after each word. So number one, the num- one of the number one areas where a man should lead in the home and initiate in the home is in the area of what I would call vision. And by vision, I mean this is where we're going. <coughs> the leader of anything is the primary keeper of the vision. And by vision, I don't mean somebody went to bed and had a dream and I just mean I just mean what do you want this thing to look like 10 years from now what do you want it to be characterized by what kinds of things do you want to have happen in your home what, what should it look like you want a strong marriage do you want your home to honor god and encourage one another you want your home and you just should sit down and just think about what what are the key characteristics we're going to assume certain things we're going to assume the ten commandments all the one and of the bible Uh, The fruit of the Spirit, we're going to assume that. But then beyond that, what are some key things for you? It might not be the same for everybody. You may have certain things you want to make sure you accomplish as a dad in your home, (coughs) and you want to write those down. What do you want this thing to look like 10 or 15 years from now? If you read any leadership book, one of the greatest vision statements ever was JFK when he said 20 years we are going to put a man on the moon. Simple as that. Wow, what a simple statement, 20 years. And he didn't know anything about gravitational pull and rocket propulsion and O-rings or anything like that. That comes later. But the vision was in 20 years, there's gonna be somebody on that moon. And so it's important to sit down and think about this. I would suggest just as a man, you think about this for your personal life. What, what, where, where do I see myself in 15 or 20 years? And it's just a way for you to get before the Lord and see if God would give you any wisdom in this area. Everybody should have some kind of a plan. Hold on to it loosely, because God has a way of changing all of our plans. But have a plan, and that's the vision. (coughs) One of the things we decided early on was we knew we were wanting to have a lot of children. We knew we wanted to adopt. We always had thought we would have a large family, and so this wasn't a surprise to us. And uh, we have just kept on with the with that plan. (coughs) But one of the things we both hated that we'd seen in other families and even in our own is all the sibling rivalry, all this contention, we just didn't believe it had to be that way. And so we sat down and wrote down we will not we will do everything we can to eliminate sibling rivalry and jealousy between siblings. And what we discovered <clears throat> over the years is that what a lot of families do is, is kind of counterproductive because what a lot of families do to eliminate sibling rivalry and jealousy is they just try to equal everything out. So they get a pair of new shoes for this kid, get them for that kid. Candy bar in the mall, kid's kid gets a candy bar at the store, that one gets a candy bar. And what the parents think they're doing is eliminating the opportunity of covetousness and jealousy, So what would they have to be jealous about? What would they have to be arguing about? What would they have to be in contention about? (coughs) The problem is what that begins to do in a child is create a sense of entitlement. So now when this kid gets a candy bar, this kid expects that they're going to get one and that they're entitled to it. And You know what that is? The exact definition of covetousness. What a parent is doing is actually cultivating covetousness in their children by doing that, because that's what covetousness is. You get a really nice car, and I, before the Lord, believe, I'm entitled to that same kind of car. That's called coveting. I'm I'm entitled to it. And we do that, and we actually cultivate it in our children, and we create more rivalry, not less. We, in our home, learned early on to create, intentionally, moments of inequity on purpose. Now... It's easy to do with eight children now because I can't even afford equity, right? I mean, if if your toes are not sticking out of your shoes, you're just not getting a new pair. I'm sorry, right? So I'll I'll bring home a gift, (coughs) excuse me. I'll bring home a gift probably from this trip and it won't be elaborate. It might just be a pack of M&Ms, but I'll bring home one. I have eight kids. I'm bringing home one little gift and you know why? Because I'm going to pull everybody together when I get back. And I'm going to say this. Seven of you are getting ready to have an opportunity to rejoice for one of you. That's in the Bible. all right. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's in the Bible. <clears throat> and you can learn how to do it. Now, when those kids were little, and I'd bring home something and I would say, And Georgia... Georgia gets the bag of M&M's and the little ones would say, oh, I'm so happy for you, Georgia. I mean, they, <coughs> they're, you know, just, they're trying to fake it till they make it, right? But you know what they do now? They've learned to rejoice. You, you, understand, you understand that if two of you in this room go for the same job and you do it both honorably and with all the best intentions and all the right ways, and one of you gets the job and the other one doesn't, the one of you that didn't get the job, you're really supposed to rejoice for the guy who did get it. And the one who did get it, you're really supposed to kind of weep with a guy who didn't get it. You don't say, I knew I was gonna get it, right? I mean, you just, and the other guy that didn't get it doesn't say, you don't deserve it, you don't, love it. I mean, you don't, that's the body of Christ. <clears throat> and there's not supposed to be rivalry and jealousy in the body of Christ. I. I drive up to my church parking lot, and uh, there are people there driving some really nice cars. Really nice cars. And I'm driving up, I drive a 12-passenger church van, right? I mean they're they're driving BMWs and everything else. I drive up in a loaf of bread on wheels. That's what I drive. <laughs> the most uncool car a man can drive. And I don't, I mean, I don't I don't pull up in the driveway over the parking lot and say, you know, look at that. I bet I pray more than that guy. I bet I, I bet I read my Bible more than that guy. No, because it's none of my business. It really is not even my business what that guy's driving. It's not my business what kind of house God has given that guy. And that guy might have all sorts of other issues in his life that I don't know about. It's not up to me. Isn't that free? You're not running the world. Isn't that a great thing to have off your shoulders today? You are not running this thing. And you don't even need to feel like you're running this thing. We're not running it. And so God is sovereign and he's sovereign over the picture, but you should, you should have a picture of what, what do you want this thing to look like? That's, 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 actually a fun thing to dream about. What, what should this look like 10 or 15 years from now? But number two is in the area of what I would call direction. <coughs> this is how we get there. Vision is this is where we're going. Direction is this is how we get there. This is where you sort of map out some of the details of the vision. How are you going to, you want a strong marriage? Great. Everybody wants a strong marriage. No, Even lost people, even non-believers, they don't go to the altar and think, I hope this doesn't work out. They hope it works out. Everybody's hoping it works out or they wouldn't even do it. So they're hopeful. They want a good marriage. They have high hopes. But what most people don't do is put things into place to help them cultivate the strong marriage. This is, this is where a lot, of, a lot of men fail. They have a lot of ideas, but they won't write down, how are we gonna do this? You want a strong marriage? Then what are you gonna do? Well, maybe you'll just write a few things down, like my wife and I, we try to go out on a date night once a week without the kids. That's important. It's important to demonstrate to my children that there's one relationship in the home that's more important than any other, and that's the relationship I have with my wife. And I regularly tell them all the time, I love your mother more than you. Now, you're a close second. That's what I tell them. You're a real close second. Now, what do you think they do when I do that? Do you think they run up into their bedrooms and curl up in the fetal position and have a low self-esteem and they're worried that I, I don't love them as much as I love their mother? No. They love it. You know why? Because it's one of their barometers of whether or not everything's okay with the world, especially the little kids. What are, what's a little kid doing? See. Watching the news and reading the Wall Street Journal? I don't think so. How does he know if the world is okay? The only way he knows is if he thinks everything's okay with his mom and dad. (coughs) And so I, when my wife and I go out, because I'm communicating something to her too, that this is the most important relationship in the whole house, and I treat it that way. And I make sure she feels it and knows it. And every woman has a different way that she feels it and knows it. Right, You just have to figure out which that way is for your wife. <clears throat> but I'll pull all the kids together and say, we're going out. Where are we going? Oh, we aren't going anywhere. Your mother and I are going somewhere. And we're going to have a lot of fun. You know why? Why? Because you all aren't coming. That's why. <laughs> we had fun before you got here. We're going to have fun while you're here because I plan on having fun after you're gone. And that better be sooner rather than later, i got to tell you folks, you're not going to be playing Xbox in my basement when you're 30 years old, alright? So get in, get your stuff, and get out, and go have your own family, and do it however you want to do it. <coughs> so we have a date night. We go off for two or three nights, two or three times a year without the kids. And it's not, it, we don't have to go out of the country, sometimes we go as close as an hour and a half north to Indianapolis, get a cheap hotel, and just hang out, eat at a couple restaurants, walk around. Just, we're just gone. The, the beauty of it is, I, I, I could go to Lexington, which is 50 minutes away, and there's nothing there except University of Kentucky, which means there's nothing there, okay? And so, <coughs> uh, it doesn't matter, we're out of town. Cheap hotel, we walk around, hold hands, eat some ice cream, go to dinner. It's just the two of us, though. It's not complicated. I love to hunt and hunting has to be passed down I mean for most people you don't just go to the store and buy a gun and say I'm gonna go shoot something right I mean somebody has to show you kind of how to do it and what the what the the skill in it and it's just handed down and so I've always wanted my boys to enjoy the the art of hunting so what do I do just give them a gun when they're 18 and say go do it no (laughs) no definitely not yeah no, we started when they were when they were three years old, just watching deer, no gun. You just start, and it's showing them what a track looks like, and how do you tell which direction it's going, and that might not be your thing, but whatever your thing is, you don't have to do that. Whatever your thing is, you might you might have a skill. Some of you are just good with your hands. <coughs> um, my dad could fix anything. I I had what I would call a mechanical bypass at some point in my life. I I don't understand it. I. I don't, and my dad could fix anything, anything. He still can, and that's why I keep inviting him over to the house from <laughs> Florida. you know, the, Hey, we'd really love to see you. And uh, <laughs> by the way, <clears throat> <coughs> so whatever you're thinking, you, you might be a good mechanic. You might be good at something else. You might have a hobby that's very, just whatever it is, though, whatever you're going to pass along, pass it along. So you've got to put steps to the plan. You can't just just think it's just going to happen. You have to intentionally say, and you don't have to write a 100-page document. I don't write down every place we're going to go on a date. I just wrote down in our little plan, we're going to go somewhere once a week. That's it, and some other things. All right, number three. So we have vision, direction. Number three is instruction. Let me show you how. Instruction, let me show you how. Now, this is where you prepare everybody for obstacles. So it doesn't matter what you're leading. If you're not married, just whatever you're leading, because of the fall, there are going to be obstacles into your plan. You're going to have a plan. You're going to have direction. You've got it all mapped out. And lo and behold, you're going to be reminded every day of this thing, that there's a fall and there are obstacles, and you are working by the sweat of your brow, and there are thorns and thistles in the garden you're trying to plow. And so I'm trying to let my family know that I'm not just giving the vision and the direction and then pulling out and just watching them operate. I'm gonna be in there with them, trying to prepare them for the obstacles that they're going to face. And by, the way I do that is by rehearsing scenarios that may happen, all sorts of things. Not just, hey, what happens if a guy comes in a ice cream truck and tells you to get in the truck? I mean, that's kind of 101. that you're supposed to teach your kids what to do with a stranger and all that. but I mean, all sorts of life decisions. What happens What happens if you're in a situation uh, We've been working on this since the boys were little, because <clears throat> they have sisters, and there could be something, something could go down somewhere. What happens if you're somewhere and somebody's bothering one of your sisters? What do you do? I mean, if you if you thought if you think about it ahead of time, you already sort of have the upper hand because you don't have to make an impulsive decision. The more scenarios you rehearse in your mind and plan ahead for, the the less, <clears throat> the more prepared you are in the moment of crisis, and that's true for everything. In fact, I just read uh, an article about people who survive big tragedies that they shouldn't have survived, plane wrecks and other things, and it's it's. these people all have one thing in common. They thought about it ahead of time. What would happen? They just thought, hey, if this plane wrecks, this is what I'm gonna do. That was all they thought. They, They don't dwell on it. They're not worriers. These people are not worriers and fretful people. They just plan and they'll be in a restaurant and they'll say, what happens if somebody comes in here with a gun? They just thought it through. <clears throat> and so that's what they all have in common. And not, I'm not worried about a ghost around every corner, okay? So I'm not making our kids scared, but I do want them to be prepared. What happens if you go to ballet rehearsal today, Georgia? What happens if you go there and two or three of the girls come to you and say, hey, we're gonna ignore Susie all day today. Why don't you do that with us? Because I know I'm being recorded here, but girls can be mean, all right? Girls can be meaner than boys. Boys can get into it, and there can even be blood involved. And five minutes later, they're back shooting hoops and they're back into it, right? It just, it's over. Girls can be really mean. And they do stuff. Let's just ignore Susie all day today. Why don't we do that? What are you going to do if that happens? What are you going to do if <coughs> your kid does something to another kid? Because those of you that have little kids, let me just prepare you something. Your kid is going to bite somebody in the nursery. Okay? They're just going to do it. Sorry. And it's, and in, in, and your kid's gonna get accused of doing something that you don't even think he did or she did, but they're gonna get accused of doing something. So we've rehearsed a a scenario that has worked every single time for us. We're married 23 years, have a bunch of kids, and they've done something to somebody, all of them have. We say this, we get a phone call, your your boy bit my perfect little boy in nursery and we bit him. Here's what we say. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. Fisher is the one that typically would do it, but (laughs) (coughs) Fisher is capable of that and much worse. And that is true for every one of your kids. I don't want to bust your bubble, but they're, they're capable of whatever they're accused of. Biblically speaking, they're capable of much worse. Now we're all praying. We don't see that side of them, right? But they are capable. So it's all true. Fisher is capable of this and much worse. If you'll give me a few minutes so I can talk to Fisher, I will call you right back and I give you my word. We're gonna do whatever we need to do to make this right. Every bit of that's true. And sometimes the parent was right, Fisher did it. Sometimes the parent was wrong and their kid lied. And what we did was ward off any major arguments Churches can split over something like that, right? I mean, it's just, you can get mad, and before you know it, somebody says, you're a bad parent, well, you're a bad parent, You're, you're, you know, and your mother is a bad, you know, and you start talking about somebody's mother, and it's over, right, and then all of a sudden, you've got problems. <coughs> so preparation ahead of time. <coughs> Instruction, let me, let me show you how we're gonna do this. Let me show you how we're going to accomplish this, and it's inspiring for the leader my wife certainly is no child but she does appreciate even she and I rehearsing what what would happen if this happened what would you do if this happened and over the years we've been able to cover quite a few scenarios and it's put everybody at ease because sometimes I'm wrong we'll rehearse about how one of my kids is going to share the gospel with another kid and you know I'm a professor so I think I got it all figured out. So I'll say, all right, you're gonna say this and then he's gonna say that and then you say this and then you really got him right here, right? And then Gunner will come back and say, he didn't say that at all. Oh man, uh, you know, all right, well, I gotta go back over. But either way, it just gives everybody confidence that it's, it's leader authorized scenarios where just they, they feel confident in a lot of scenarios because we've already rehearsed them. Number four <coughs> is imitation watch me watch what I do (coughs) this is Paul saying this is as as the apostle Paul said in as much as I follow Christ follow me so you're not telling your children or anybody in your home I'm perfect but what you're saying is I'm not asking you to do something that I'm unwilling to do myself that's at the heart of leadership in fact do as I say and not as I do is failed leadership it's it's hypocrisy and I, those of you that have children know, <clears throat> kids are professional hypocrisy detectors. I mean, and they don't even mean to be, they just think in such black and white and you, you've given them right and wrong and then when they see right and wrong and they see wrong, it just gets highlighted in their mind. I don't know how many of you have ever played this game, uh, Settlers of Catan, anybody know this game? All right, it's a really fun game, I, we love to play it. And everybody in our house is competitive, everybody, all the way down to sweet little eight-year-old willa who has a big smile i mean it doesn't matter what we're playing candyland she'll say i'm getting ready to put the smack down on you dad And okay you go for it but you're not beating me in candyland i'll tell you that <clears throat> and i don't let them win on purpose uh we just we're just going at it so when we play when the olders and i play we are playing and we play settlers settlers of Catan. and i remember one time i i was trading an ore or something for a wheat and i gave it to georgia And then I took it back I said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I made a mistake. She said, well, you have to do it. It's a rule. Okay, let me tell you something. You call that on me. I'm getting the box top out if there are written instructions. I'm getting all the instructions out. I'm fine in that rule. So I start flipping, and she says, no, it's not in the rule book. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I said, so what, you and your brothers got together? She said, it's a family rule. I said, Okay. I'm game. What's the family rule? She says the family rule that we have that says let your yes be yes and your no be no. I was like, right. well, how about you going to bed early? How do you like that? <laughs> <coughs> huh? Who thinks preparing all these meals for you? You think? Uh, no, I didn't do that because she was she wasn't rude or disrespectful. She just it just got hung up in her grid. I, I said something and then did another. I tell the boys because the girls the girls. The boys are always experimenting with language, you know, like trying out new words and they'll hear something and <clears throat> the girls haven't done that so much and so but i the rule in our house is if I say it, you can say it, and if I don't say it, you can't say it now that makes me remarkably aware of my own speech, but it's supposed to be that way. We don't really have adult words and you know non adult words and so uh, we uh So we have some words we don't use and the obvious ones, but then there are others that uh, we don't call people stupid. I I don't know why. It's not in the Bible anywhere. It just, I don't like it. And uh, I I do think it's kind of an insult to that person as someone in the image of God that God made them. And not everybody has the same amount of brains. You know that, right? I mean, and, and, and it's not, that's why I keep telling my kids, you don't, You don't get to choose how many brains you got, but you can choose, like, how hard a worker you are, and all sorts of other things you do get to choose. But, you know, sometimes you just got what you got. And uh, so we don't call people stupid. But every now and then, somebody will pull out in front of me, and there's just not a better word in the English language than that (laughs) word. And the worst part is, I'm never alone. Isn't that the case with you? I'm never alone when these things, when these moments happen in my life, and I've got you know, 16 ears in the back of that church van listening to me call somebody stupid. So what do I do then? Well, then I model, what do you do when you mess up? Because I've never said to them, I'm not going to mess up, watch me. I've said, just, I'll show you. Now I model the apology. I show them what to do. How do you make it right when you mess up? Because you guys are going to do this too. So I say, I'm sorry I said that. We've agreed we're not going to call people stupid. I'm going to try real hard not to do that again. Will you guys forgive me? Yeah, Dad, we forgive you, and we move on but it's still watch me, still keep your eye on me. I'll, I'll show you what to do the right way. And then when I mess up, I'll show you how to make that right. But either way, if, if you can't be that kind of a leader, you're, you're gonna disrupt the, the souls of the people you're trying to lead because it is just sheer hypocrisy. And what a lot of men sometimes think is, well, if I apologize to my kids or even my wife, then it's gonna make me look weak in their eyes. No, it's actually the opposite. Don't ever think that, it's actually the opposite. Uh, it, it builds confidence, even if it's people you work for, I mean, that work for you. Uh, you're not married. You're, you know, the people that work around you, an apology is powerful, powerful. Acknowledgement that I was wrong is powerful. <clears throat> and the unwillingness to do it actually breeds bitterness and contempt in the hearts of the people you're trying to lead because they see it. They see it they see it clearer than you. That's why James says, anybody that comes with the word of God and walks away the same way he came is like a man who looks in the mirror and just, and and James doesn't say this, but the implication is his his hair is unkempt, his face. I mean, he's all, he's a train wreck. And he looks at the mirror and says, yeah, I'm good to go. And then turns around and walks away. Deceiving whom? Himself. Not everybody else, because everybody else can see it plain as day. James is very emphatic. You're only deceiving yourself when you do that. And so when we fail to acknowledge our wrong to the folks that we've wronged, we're not deceiving them. They just saw it happen. They just saw you do it. Who are you deceiving? Yourself. So don't do that. But imitation, it's it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. Certainly our wives are going to need to display godly, consistent character as well. But a man as the leader has to be the initiator. He's got to be doing it himself. My dad, <clears throat> my dad, when I was younger, he taught me not to be scared of things, and here's how he did it. I was little. We lived, we lived in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, orange groves, and it was dark. There weren't street lights, and there were just noises, noises. I'd be in my bedroom, I'd hear a noise. Now, my dad. As I said yesterday, was a lineman for the power company. He worked really hard and got really tired, and so sleep is important for this man. And I would go in there, and I would say, Dad, somebody's out there. I know it. Somebody's out there. <clears throat> now, he could have said, Son, get in your bed. But, and he could have, and that would have been okay, but he didn't do that. He would get up in the middle of the night. Now, he's in a dead sleep. He'd get up in the middle of the night, and we'd go out there. Like He'd open the door, and we'd walk out there. I'm like, this guy's crazy somebody's out here. This guy's crazy. He just knew there was. Now, I don't know how he knew that even one time I wouldn't be right, right? I mean, like, surely out of the 50 times I did it, one time, but he just knew there ain't anything out there, and he would take me out there, and all he's saying is, son, come out here. I'm gonna come out here with you, and you're gonna come with me, and I'm gonna show you myself. There is nothing out here for you to be scared of. Now, that had had an effect on my life. I got to tell you, even today, I if, if you see me scared, you better run because something bad is bad to, about to happen. I mean, I just, it just doesn't bother me. Stuff doesn't bother me. And, and uh, I, he didn't even know he was doing that. Do you know what I'm saying? He didn't, he didn't think, man, when this guy's 40, he's going to be fearless. He just, he just, that's just how he did it. I remember a kid spent the night with me one time. <clears throat> we heard a noise. He said, you better go in there and get your dad. I said, "Do you want to go out there and see what that is?" He said, "No." I said, "Then you don't wake that man up in there because you wake him up." So I don't care. You can cry yourself to sleep tonight, for all I care. We're just not going out there. That's where we'll be in about five minutes. So number five is inspiration. And the phrase right next to the word inspiration should be, "Isn't this great?" inspiration. Isn't this great? Now, i got to tell you, this is the funnest part in my, in, my, in my world of being a leader at Southern Seminary and being a leader in my home. This is the funnest part to me, and I get a lot of enjoyment. Isn't this great? Because the leader in the home, the leader of anything, is responsible for morale. Simple as that, morale. And let's face it, life, where, where, you, I work at an incredible place. The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is an incredible place, but it's full of fallen people. There, there's, there, there's not a place without problems. It's not a place without conflict. It's not a place without sin. <coughs> My home is not a place without conflict. It's not a place without problems, it's not a place without sin, and neither is yours. So when I go home and I say, this is a great family, I mean it. I mean it, because it's my responsibility to tell them that. And if it isn't one, then it's also my responsibility to help put some steps into place to make it one that I can really say that truthfully, but I say it all the time. This is a great family. This is an awesome family. I love this family. I'm so glad God made me the dad and the husband of this family. And you say, my, my daughter or my oldest kid's going to say, Dad, how can you say that? I mean, just today alone, we had some kids that stole a toy. Two of us lied. And I would say, I know. And I don't want to be the husband or father to any other group of liars and thieves than this one. <laughs> I'm not saying there is a problems here. I'm not saying we're not dealing with sin here. And I'm not putting my head in the sand. It's not fake. I don't just paint a cheesy grin on my face and fake it all day long. It's not fake. I'm well aware of the faults of this home. I'm well aware of everybody's temptation and what they typically do when they get angry and all sorts, I'm well aware of all of that. But I'm telling you, I mean it before the Lord. I think it's an awesome family. And part of the reason why it's awesome is because I keep telling them it's awesome. You know what sometimes the kids will say now? We'll just be in the middle of something and we'll be laughing our heads off about something. And somebody will say, hey, this really is a great family. Like it just don't, you know, just wow, this is a great family. Because who's going to tell them that? Who else is going to tell them that? Nobody, typically, because they're not around you enough. Every now and then we get a compliment. Hey, your kids behaved really well at, the, at this restaurant, a waitress or somebody. <clears throat> but that, that's sweet. But that, that doesn't reach the, the heart and soul of my family, that a server at a restaurant said, hey, you did a good job. It's me. It's me. Now, if you think your kids need encouragement, your wife needs it way more. And who better to give it to her than you? Just kind words. That's all it is. They're free, by the way. You're carrying around kind words with you all the time. I mean, just think about this. You don't have to bring home jewelry. It doesn't even have to be flowers. How about some kind words? Every day, you ran into her. I'm so happy you're my wife. I deeply love you and appreciate you. I couldn't wait to get home from work today to tell you that. That's free and that's simple. He said, "Yeah, but we got in an argument last night." I don't care. I really don't. You say enough nice words. Enough kindness? <clears throat> in fact, if somebody else is giving affirmation to your wife more than you are, you're in deep trouble. Now, I don't mean some other guy. Now, if there's some other guy as you are, you better if somebody just better have a talking to today. <laughs> you might need to leave right now. I just mean anybody. Her mother? Is her mother saying kinder things to her about than you? Because I mean, there I just out of look, it's not even Christian, it's just out of a sheer sense of competition. I ain't losing to my mother-in-law about that, right? I'm not losing anybody, but I'm not losing to her. I will say way more nice things to my wife than my mother-in-law. I'm winning that every time. because I got her all the time. My mother wants to pick up a phone and dial numbers. And then we don't have to answer it. But my wife said, oh, I've got it. I've got her. I've got it. I can win that all the time. The ladies in the neighborhood love my wife. And they say sweet things to her all the time. You're a good mom. You're... And that's sweet. It makes her feel good. But <clears throat> they don't really know, do they? I mean, they don't live in our house. They don't they didn't see my wife lose her temper or get irritated or get impatient. They didn't see all that, but I do. And that's what it means all the more when I say it. Because I see all that and I still say, you're an awesome wife. You're a great mom. It's just your job and it's fun. I don't know why anybody wouldn't do it because it's fun. Do you, I mean, do you just dislike somebody smiling back at you? I mean, well, I tell people at work all the time. This is an awesome place. Did you ever dream in a million years when you first became a believer that you would be here at Southern Seminary training the next generation of ministers of the gospel that from that little town of Louisville, we would be sending people literally all over the world Did you ever dream that when you became a believer? Well, no, yeah. Now get in there and go teach, all right? I mean, this is unbelievable. And we got problems. Number six is connected to number five. Number six is what I would call affirmation. You're doing great. This is individual, individual group. Is one thing you can stand in front of a group and say this team is awesome then what you have to do is number six affirmation you're doing great is go back because the key to morale is individual affirmation you got to go to individuals and say you're doing a great job i i will pull my kids aside and say hey you're doing a great job doing what being my kid you're just doing a good job being my kid i've told them on multiple occasions when your mother and i Before we had children, when we were thinking about children, we thought it was going to be awesome, but it's way better than we even thought it was going to be. This has been great. (coughs) You're doing great. Willa is eight. And I've been telling her she's a great kid. You're doing great for a long time. You know what she told me the other night? Because this is contagious. You start telling people they're doing a good job, it's contagious. I'm just telling you, it is contagious. You will have a home that is full of encouragers. Even if they're not generally prone to it, they just can't avoid it. It's just part of the language of the home. You know what Willa told me the other night? I want you to think about this. <clears throat> I put her to bed and you know what she said? You're a great dad. Now how does she know? She got some experiment going on somewhere? Like She doesn't even know any other dads right? How would she really know if I am or I'm not? I could be the worst dad in history. She's only eight. She doesn't, she hasn't, she doesn't have anybody to compare me to. How does she know? She doesn't really know. It's just contagious. She, she knows how she feels when I tell her she's a great daughter and she thought, hey, I'm getting ready to make dad's night. I'm going to say something nice. Dad, you're a great dad. It's contagious. Even if these kids don't even know if you really are or aren't, if, if it's really true or not. It's, it's part of the grammar of the home. And I got to tell you, I just want you to understand that, you know, I don't want to put too much on anybody's shoulders in here, but just how people talk in the home, that's something you can control. And that's something you can encourage. that's something you can discipline for. That's something you can detour, detour. <coughs> it's like, it's like oil in the gears of the machinery that keep the gears from grinding. Kind words, just kind words. It's like oil in the machine that keeps the gears from grinding. Kindness. I mean, isn't that novel? I mean, it's right there in the Bible. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. It's all right there. And I know this isn't easy, but God gives his Holy Spirit to you and I so affirmation, number seven <coughs> is evaluation. We're going to brush through these. Evaluation, how are we doing? This is what I call the burden of leadership. A- evaluation, how are we doing? The leader has to pick his head up and look around and say, are we doing what we said we were going to do? We said we wanted a strong marriage. And we said the way we were going to get a strong marriage is we were going to go on a date night once a month. We haven't been uh, once a week. We're on, we haven't been on a date night in two months. That's just evaluation. We said we were going to do this. Now, either we were wrong or we got to do something else. But it's never too late, by the way, never too late. I used to cut grass in Florida and it grows fast. There's a kind of grass there called St. Augustine grass and it's real thick and it grows fast. And before you know it, if you just have a regular push mower like I used to use, it can get to be too much to handle. I mean, I put it off a day and it would rain the next day. The sun would come out, the grass is still too wet because if it's wet, it's hard to cut. You got to let it dry. The next day it would rain again. And before I knew it, I frittered the time away and now it's it's this tall and thick. And sometimes I'd have to go find somebody that has something a little bit better than my machinery to help me cut it down so I could get it to where it's more manageable. And I just want to tell every one of you men in here, some of you, I don't know you, which is, so this makes it easier to say. Some of you may just have let some things go too long. And you think, there's no way. There's no way I can dig out of this. There's no way I can pull out of this. I'm in too deep. The grass is too high. I don't have the machinery to cut it. You probably don't. But somebody does. I am telling you. I am telling you, I have been in the ministry for <clears throat> 28 years. 28 years since I was 18 years old, and I have seen some train wrecks that you would never believe. And God intervened, and there was repentance, and there was heart change, and the gospel had its way in their lives. I have seen it over and over and over. Don't think that you're too deep into whatever you're into. That There is somebody that has the right equipment, somebody with the right wisdom, and I would start with people you think are wise, maybe one of your pastors, one of the elders at this church. Start there, and if they don't know, they'll find somebody. There's somebody out there. You, you, somebody has the equipment. I have never not been able to find somebody to cut the grass when it was too high. They make some serious equipment out there. And there's some people that God has equipped to help you. You can do not, do not wait too long. Number eight is correction. Let's make a change. Simple as that. Evaluation, after evaluation comes correction. That's what you do when you evaluate. And then number nine, and we're done. So correction, let's make a change. And then number nine is protection and provision. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And this is just the overarching sentiment of leading. And it's expressed with great humility and full knowledge that I really can't keep harm from happening to my children. I can't, I can't stop cancer from coming into my home. I can't stop a drunk driver from running into a member of my family. And they know that, that when I say I'm, I'm going to take care of you, I'm not saying I'm going to prevent, I can't even prevent the common cold. I'm not saying that nothing bad is ever going to happen in this family. All I'm saying is when it does, I'm going to be here. I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. I'm going to, I'm going to double down. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to, we're going to work hard at this thing and I'm going to be here. I'm not going anywhere because fathers die. Husbands lose their jobs. Tragedy comes into the lives of children like cancer and sickness and other things. That's not, that's not in play here. What is in play is my commitment to them. And <clears throat> I've learned over the years to express it as often as I can, as often as I think. And I'm not going anywhere. I tell my wife all the time, I'm not going anywhere. I tell the kids all the because the more you say it, just the, the more you're committed to it, right? I mean, I've told those kids a thousand times, more. My, uh, my grandfather died about <clears throat> 4 years ago we went to the funeral and we all cried we went to the casket he was 89 and he had been getting sick and we saw it coming it doesn't make it it doesn't make it easier in the sense that death is always bad cuz it's it's a wicked intruder into our lives it is a result of the fall <clears throat> and it's a result of sin so it's always bad and we cried but it didn't feel like a tragedy right, because he had lived a long life and he was healthy all the way up until the end, and it didn't seem like a tragedy. We got back from that funeral, and three days later, somebody from our church called me and said, Gunner's, and Gunner was about 13 at the time, Gunner's small group leader who was 30 years old, healthy, played basketball twice a week, went to work, and collapsed at work and died. Now that's different. He had three little kids under five years old. That's different. God is still in charge, but that feels different, right? It's different, and so I can't stop that from coming into Gunner's life. I cannot stop his small group leader from dying tragically, without they aren't even an explanation. They still don't know what happened. But I was still there, because what's a 13-year-old boy thinking at the time? Two things. One, that could be my dad. And two, is God good? So he wasn't asking, is God good at my grandfather's funeral because it didn't feel tragic, but this guy is leaving behind three little children and a wife and, and all sorts of things undone. And so what's my role in protection and provision? It's not to remove that from his life, but it, it's to walk it through and to still help protect him and protect his soul from bitterness and anger and resentment and to coach him through God is good. He never does a wrong thing. He never does a bad thing. And this is painful. And those children are experiencing pain and that wife is experiencing pain. But God is good and He will work this together. And so it's I will spend the last drop of energy and love and life taking care of you and I can be counted on by God's grace. That's kind of the Overarching sentiment. So there you have it. Nine, nine areas where a man should and could initiate in the home, as what I would call a matter of application of Ephesians, Ephesians five. So, thanks for being here, and I'll uh, pray for us, and uh, then we'll have one more, one more song. Father, we know that the apostle Paul prayed for courage, and so I pray for courage, and uh, pray as the disciples prayed. Lord, we have faith. Increase our faith. We, we pray that we would be trusting in you, depending upon you, acknowledging your goodness and faithfulness in our life, acknowledging our frailty <clears throat> before you, but we know in our weakness you're made strong, and so we acknowledge our weakness, and we, we pray that you would demonstrate yourself to be strong in our lives and that uh, people would see our good works and glorify you, our Father who is in heaven, in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.